ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engines running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Welcome to the Launchpad Pod. I'm Aaron. I'm Matt. And Matt, we have some guests in the Launchpad Podcast today. We have Bill and George from Famous Monsters of Filmland. What's going on, guys? Oh, you know, lots of things. <laughs> <laughs> we don't want to make it sound too exciting, though. <laughs> you got to lower your expectations. Let's see what's going on. Well, our annual pilgrimage to Mecca called San Diego Comic Con is coming on. That's where uh, we met, right? That's right. That's right. Um, and by the way, you guys have been uh, uh, just wonderful uh, associates and at times partners. So uh, thank you guys. Thank you guys. Oh, thank it's you. been fun. It's yeah. it's always fun when when you find people who nerd out the same way and the same level as you do. And uh, Famous Monsters <laughs> is definitely that. I mean, you guys, you partially responsible for our nerddom. Yeah, big time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, our predecessors certainly, but we yeah we we definitely try to keep our end of our what do they say uh, pull our weight. We're yeah, there you go. Yeah. yeah. So. I was like the end of our bargain. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, today we are talking about a topic that we thought you guys would be perfect to bring on for. We are talking about legacy monsters. And Matt and I have been talking about this idea for a minute and it's like what is a legacy monster and what monsters will have legacies going forward. And it's a little abstract, but I think our listeners will immediately pick up what we're talking about when we dive in, when we first start talking about the original legacy monsters. And to me, that starts with the universal monsters. And they are like super classics, super famous. They've been around forever. People keep trying to make them, but the original series is such a classic. And for you guys, which monsters from this, the original legacies from the early 30s, 40s, 50s, which monsters spoke to you? Phil, how about we start with you? Yeah, well, I think, um, I mean, I, I, I don't want to get too analytical and, and too uh, college but um, <laughs> I think we have to kind of go back to, you know, when you say classic monsters, it kind of goes back to even pre 1930s, which is, you know, like H.P. Lovecraft. There was a period of enlightenment in the mid to late 1800s where uh, especially in europe where you know for the first time women were writing and they were writing novels and you know of course mary shelley and and frankenstein and mm, uh, yeah what was he a baron some kind of noble title and he wrote dracula but that was all myths going back to you know vlad and and transylvania i mean this stuff's been around forever so i i think I think part of the reason why we can call them legacy monsters is prior to uh, the kind of technology and resources we have today, we can drum up anything that we imagine. Back in the day, you know, most people were living on a dollar a day or less, and, you know, they didn't really have a lot of resources or time to generate stories. But there were always this kind of ongoing uh, I guess what we would call urban legends now, just the myth of creatures. If you get out of line morally, you're going to end up in the clutches of something that sucks all your life out and blood, right? So so there was all of this kind of mythology and superstition. And so those monsters had lived throughout our multiple, through multiple cultures for a long, long time without any real competition of 
new monsters, correct? Right. And I was, I was going to say, yeah, the early legacy monsters, I mean, Frankenstein, Dracula, I mean, and even though the mummy doesn't necessarily have a literary component, it they were all these legends that came from long history of legends. Ever since Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein, Bram Stoker wrote Dracula, and the wave of Egypt hysteria as they found King Tut's tomb and the idea of a mummy's right. curse. All these things have a basis that really thrilled people's imagination. So when yeah. Universal Monsters finally put it on screen, it just captured people's imaginations and played with their fears right off the bat. It, it, it almost is like a slam dunk. Like, look at these, these great stories that people have been in love with well, it for wasn't, years. Though, but, but it wasn't. So what ended up happening was the history of Universal Studios. Universal has always been like the smaller of the other studios. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Varner brothers came in and, and you know, started the, uh, the Warner Company, RKO. There were a lot of companies that were much bigger than Universal. But Carl Lemley, who started Universal Studios, and his family, they were very, very poor. I believe they were Russian Jewish immigrants. And sorry, they were German, I think. They were German, my, my apologies. They were super poor. Like most immigrants that first come here as a, as a mass exodus, uh, they were very poor. But they understood new technology came out from Germany where uh, Lycon cameras and and they were able to exhibit like just people walking down the street or something and like they'd show that for whatever you know one cent and people would be like mesmerized at this you know flickering light so yeah so they so everybody was developing getting very rich very quickly kind of like social media today but back in the day it was it was motion pictures so this this thing was happening and Carl Emily went from being kind of a pauper to this incredibly you know, industrious, impactful figure in, in, in this growing Hollywood. But the thing that's interesting is he was very much into the opera. So, you know, you would have these gigantic silent movie choruses with, you know, and how they would do that is you would have the music being played independent of the actual visuals that were happening, right? So yeah, you'd then, have the live organ performance. Right, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And so... Then what was happening was uh, Germany was on the march. There was a second world war coming. It's kind of like, you know, you can look at like how we live today and what our society looks like. When when the world goes into some kind of combat or chaos, the citizenry starts reacting towards those things more apocalyptically. So all of these things that people were watching, these cool big dance sequences, these kind of more roaring 20s, uh, highbrow wealth-generated societal entertainment started going off to the side. And so Carl, Ju- Carl, not Carl's Jr., but Carl Lemley Jr., which was... <laughs> Made some hamburgers. <laughs> yeah, exactly, which was his nephew, um, said, you know, uncle, we really, really need to basically reach out to the masses. And back in the old country, we had all of these great folklore. The gypsies told about this and that. And part of this, I'm just kind of making up because I don't know if he said gypsies, but the point is like, I'm buying Carl, it. Yeah. Right. Carl, Jr., <laughs> Carl Lemley Jr. Was really the one who said we need to go into horror films and science fiction and that sort of stuff. And Carl senior looked at him like he was mad, right? He was like, no, this is not what we do. This is cinema. This is high art. And so, but, uh, universal studios was about to, uh, close and uh, literally get foreclosed on by the financiers. So, he said, well, there's nothing else for me to lose. So he hands the studio over to uh, Carl Lemley Jr. And Carl made the very first talking horror, 1931 Dracula. Yeah. That 
of course, he hit it right on the nail. <laughs> I mean, so that, that, that Dracula is such a classic. And yeah. I think, Phil, you hit it on the, the head of the nail. You said mythology and you said urban legends. And I feel like if you boil down most of these stories, what you'd call legacy monsters and legacy horror, most of them boil down when you strip it away. It's like you said, it's folklore. It's urban legends. It's, it's mythos where no matter what your culture is, there was some sort of story about that, right? Like you take Dracula and the mummy, those stories are actually very similar and they're also very timeless, right? For love, you do something you know you're not supposed to that ends up blowing up in your face and it makes you a villain, right? I mean, that's what Darth Vader is. You've seen that story so many times and I feel that part of why these monsters and these stories have become a legacy is because everyone can relate to them. It doesn't matter where you're from, who you are, what your religion is, what your culture is, what you know, what your personal experience even is. Those stories literally are timeless by definition. Right. And I think, you know, you gave us like a real good history lesson there, Phil. And it's very interesting. And it's something that I thought about a lot for this episode was a lot of these monsters, this is the first time that that type of story. I don't even mean vampire, but I just mean that type of antagonist, that type of protagonist in that way was brought to a screen for a wide audience. And I think, you know, the Wolfman, the Mummy, I mean, definitely the earlier ones, right? You have Dracula. You Dracula was 1931. The Mummy was 1932. Frankenstein was 31. Invisible Man, which is one of my absolute favorites, that was 33. But even before that, you have Phantom of the Opera and Hunchback of Notre Dame. Those were in the right. 20s. Those stories had not been shown shown as a film before that. So now it's reaching the masses and they were done pretty well. I mean, they clearly have st- stood the test of time as far as cinematic standards goes. But you have all these movies coming out in the same 10, 20 year period. And it's I think as a culture that is now ingrained in our collective memory. And I think that yeah. helps make it the legacy that it's become. Yeah, I mean, part of, I mean, I think it's just, I, I think the minute Hollywood was Hollywood, you know, in its inception, mm-hmm. it's, it, it, it operated the way it's always been operating until now, which is, I, I don't know if you've been in this situation where you think you have a good idea and people are saying, well, we don't know if it's a good idea and it's all on you. So, you know, you're not sitting there trying to say, well, you know, if this idea fails, I've got 30 more on the you know, s- slate. Sure. I-, I honestly think it was it was very accidental. I think uh, Carl Jr. was very you know, I'll just say Lemley Jr. When, when Lemley Jr. Uh, <laughs> you're making me hungry, man. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Double bacon. No. Uh, I-, I think when he launched this, it was really a a bid to save the studio because Universal Studios and Universal City actually was there. Uh, when Lemley Sr., he, he had literally purchased this large swath of land, and he had this whole vision of this whole town where actors, and uh, it, kind of what it is now, some version of that. And so he he was well over his, it was a real estate deal, and Carl was going to inherit some portion of that. And when he saw it going to the banks, I think a lot of it was kind of unplanned, and this is my speculation, but... I think a lot of it was unplanned. I think as a younger generation, he was into this stuff. He grew up with all the folklore. So he said, why don't we do this? But it was mostly to save the studio. So the minute this thing became just a massive success, international success, they said, 
what other scary crap is out there that we grew up with, right? And so the grabbing whatever's out there, and of course, one of the most famous literary pieces were, was Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. So they grabbed that one. And then it's like, oh, yeah, you know, you know, at this point, there was all of this exploration into the Egyptian, you know, there, there was all of this British expansion. And so, you know, that, let's grab that. Because if you look at the movies and if you talk to any of the heirs of these fantastic legendary actors like Karloff and, and Lugosi, these actors didn't get paid a lot. Like, like, oh. like yeah, Lugosi was on pain medication all the time because he was, they were doing their own stunts. They were yeah. getting hurt regularly. Right. And there was no union. The studios were, you know, I don't even want to say, like, it wasn't like I think people were sitting around going, let's hurt these actors and make them work. I think it's just, there was this lack of thought for, any kind of those things, because this was a new industry. Nobody knew what well, they were to handle that yet. Yeah. You always see that image of of Boris Karloff in the Frankenstein makeup sleeping upright in like a table they built him because yeah. they would have to do the makeup on him for so long that he would just be sleeping upright. And then yeah. like he would act and then they'd go put him in this like table chair that he couldn't because he couldn't sit down. He couldn't lie down like they just kept him upright the whole time, which is crazy. And I mean, it was six, eight. And so imagine yeah. how weight that you know, it's, it's really different when you're that tall versus when you're a short guy. Yeah. All that weight really, it, it kind of works against you. Yeah. So it, it's, it's crazy. And these movies, I mean, they made a gamble and it took a minute, but it paid off and all the way, I mean, for a long time, they were pumping these out all the way up through the forties. And then into the fifties, they tried to catch this craze with one of my favorites, the creature from the black lagoon. But mm. before we get into that, I, I want to throw to George real quick, George, what was your introduction to the Universal Monsters. What when did you first get your first hit of this? Oh, I was probably like six, seven years old, and uh, my parents raised me on all these. Like I was Lon Chaney kid growing up. I used to watch the Hunchback of Notre Dame on repeat. Wow. And then, yeah, that, that that was my my film. You had good parents. Time. Yeah, <laughs> your parents oh, yeah, loved my, you. My mom and dad were in the classic films, which was great. So I, I definitely had a. I have an old soul. I think that's why I work for this company. <laughs> there you go. And, uh, <laughs> Hunchback's an interesting one too because he's less of a. I mean, he, he's, he's not. He's not a monster. He's not a, he's monster, not really a monster. Yeah, and uh, I think that's the important thing. Like we've been touching upon is like these. We call these monsters and everything. Aaron, you said something important. So did you, Phil? And that's that these these characters are relatable. You know, yeah, yeah. we connect with them, and they're, they're tortured souls. And yeah, when they had that that revitalizing boom back in like in the '60s and uh, late '50s with the, with the kids at that time. The kids that were watching it on syndication, because now TV is showing these movies, these were the tortured souls of that era. These are the kids are getting picked on. You know, they're the outcast, and they can relate with Frankenstein and with the mummy and the Dracula and the Wolfman. And yeah. I think as a kid, I kind of felt that too. Like, I was a nerd growing up. So getting to watch these guys, like like the Frank the Frankenstein, like I love Frankenstein. One of my favorite books, honestly, as a kid was Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Wow. Me too. I remember, yeah. I remember reading that as a child and it's like, it's just such a dark and touching story. That was one of those characters. I felt like he's, he looks like a monster, but inside he's as human as all of us. Just yeah. looking. Well, for I mean, sentence. I mean, he was more human in a sense that, well, not than, his, than his, than his creator, than right, his creator because, was the monster. I mean, think about the story. He's a child that was born of an irresponsible parent, a single parent, mm. then decided, no, seriously, then decided yeah. that he doesn't want him because he made, it was a mistake. So th then the monster goes out and he's looking for love and everybody else treats him the same way. 
So what else does he turn to? You know, it's like it's like, all right, man, you, got, you reject me. Well, I'm just gonna become a disaffected youth, and so you know. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. He he goes into down. a real emo phase then. Right, and but, then he yeah. comes back and he's like, "Hey, <laughs> hey, give me a companion." So he goes and gets him a girlfriend, and then she rejects him, and he's like, "All right, I'm done." <laughs> <laughs> <I'm> done. <laughs> Is there a self-destruct button built into the side of this lighthouse? Okay, good. <laughs> Doctor Frankenstein goes, "Why did I put that there?" Those movies. I mean, I, I grew up on them too. It was it was Frankenstein. It was the Wolfman. Then I got that box set for Christmas one year with all the VHSs. It was every single one of them, and it was just like, I mean, it was over from there. But one of the ones that I want to talk about while we're still in the original Legacy Monsters came out in uh, 1954. It was made for 3D movies back when 3D first became a thing. And that's Creature from the Black Lagoon because we just recently had sort of a remake on it with The Shape of Water, the best picture winning film. But why is the Creature from the Black Lagoon a legacy? What made him speak to people? I mean, did we all secretly want to be fishmen? What What about this movie, in your guys' opinions, what made the Gill Man such a, a famous creature? I think it was the first real FX makeup. I, I mean, I'm not saying that Frankenstein wasn't, but it was a full body makeup. Yeah, yeah. full yeah. body. body. Yeah, and, and and you see that, and I don't want to jump the the gun here, but you see that going throughout, like Predator. Why are we so crazy about the Predator? Like he, he's become the new creature from the Black Lagoon, right? So oh, yeah. interesting. I was very clear to me that the, the audience really resonates with that sort of creative endeavor in film. And, and it was done well. I mean, the Westmores, I think, wasn't it Percy Westmore? I think, yeah. I, I, yeah, okay, so Percy Westmore. These guys were glamour makeup guys for Hollywood. You know, that's how they got started. And and they just kept, <laughs> Universal kept throwing things at them and, and Paramount kept throwing things at them going, hey, can you make this? And literally had to sit down and stare at a fish going, how do I, what do I do? <laughs> so they created this thing and, I think it was, you know, obviously you look back and you're like, well, it's a little rough. I mean, obviously it's just a suit. But but then Rico Browning, Rico Browning, yeah, who was a diver, an exceptional diver, at age 18 dons this suit. Like, again, nobody knew about safety and there was no OSHA or anything like right. this. And so he's diving into – he could have killed himself. Like, it, there, was, there was so much risk in the things that they were doing. You because know, nowadays we make makeup for that particular scene in this angle. So only half the face is made up or the top of the head is made up. Back in those days, they didn't – again, they weren't proficient at this. So they had to make this full-blown latex suit or whatever, rubber suit actually. It wasn't even latex. It was a rubber suit that doesn't breathe and then now he's got to go swimming. And I'm just thinking to myself, are you kidding me? So, yeah. It, it, How it, did it, they not drown this guy? Yeah, yeah. Well, because he was that exceptional. He was that yeah. exceptional of a diver. So, so you see, um, it, it was something that was never done. The kind of creation that they did was truly art. And and you know, at, at every level, I think we as human beings, whether you're somebody at, at the at the lowest rung of the education versus somebody who's got a PhD, I think viscerally we we understand that that this is amazing. Like you appreciate exceptionalism. And, and I think that's what that represented. And, and it continues on. That's the reason why, you know, the visual effects industry is so big. Creature from the Black Lagoon was 54, okay? So that's 20 years or so after 
I'll say the brunt of again if we're if we're if we're focusing mostly on Universal movies and Universal monsters, that was mostly in the '30s and it's mostly the earlier '30s. But '54, we have Creature from the Black Lagoon, and I think what you're saying is a is important to note is now we're getting into special effects. Like there were some good special effects and there was some great makeup in the Mummy and in Frankenstein, but now we have a guy in a suit going underwater and it's fucking mind blowing. Like. Yeah. When else have we seen that as a, as a collective audience before 54? We haven't really seen that. And I think this is very important when we get to our next phase of legendary type creatures and monsters and bad guys in movies. When we start to hit late 70s, early 80s. George, what other legendary creatures, legendary monsters pop out in your mind from this next era where kind of, I don't know, George, exactly how old you are, but we're starting to, to be alive during this time, right? Some of these we may yeah. have grown up with. Who who jumps to the front of your mind as far as like a, a, a legendary creature that has stuck with us for the last, I don't know, 30, 40 years? Well, uh, I think this is a, a great connecting point because we're talking about special effects and makeup. And for me, it's it's got to be Freddy Krueger, honestly. There you go. You know, that's that's that was my guy. And he, st- he still is like it's that's my legacy creature from the 80s. Honestly, he wasn't there from the, the beginning, I think, of the era of slashers. Obviously, you know, that's that's goes to Leatherface and uh, Mike Myers. Sure. But yeah. He what I think what Freddie did is is what the classic monsters did. And this is a, a good connection is that the classic monsters had character, mm. you know, even the creature who didn't speak. Had, they, they found a way to capture his character through the lens. You know, you were able to feel his emotions even through the swimming. And I felt Freddie had that. Freddie brought what the other slashers couldn't. And that's he he had that character that you can listen to, relate to in some kind of way of like because some of these teenagers were freaking assholes. They were dicks. They <laughs> sure. deserved to die. All right. <laughs> and he tortured them in the best ways. You yeah. know, but the but the visuals though, like that burnt skin, that was yeah. haunting. And somehow and- even at like six, eight years old. I was. I wanted to watch everything he did. I didn't give a crap. Like I remember wanting the the Freddy Krueger doll as a kid, and my parents got it for me for Christmas. And I was again, you had awesome parents, man. <laughs> yeah. Well, that probably wasn't the best decision they ever made because two nights later, that thing scared the crap out of me. Well, <laughs> or was, maybe that was, was their the plan. Maybe that so, like, was their it, plan it all talked. along. It could have been. Who knows? Did it talk but, without uh, you pulling the string? Because that would have yes. been terrifying. Yes. Ah. I was in, the, in the middle of the night, it, I just heard it like, you know, I'm going to eat your dreams or whatever <laughs> it was. And I was like, get this thing out of my room. But, uh, but no, like Freddie, like I, I always loved his, like his humor. He was scary. Like he was the, the well-rounded monster of that time. Sure. And still is, you know? And I think what you're saying about character is super important. And, and again, to throw it back to creature from the black lagoon and Frankenstein and mummy, all those, they had character. And I feel like in in a little bit, we'll talk about where legacy creatures and monsters are currently and where they might be in the future. And I feel like there's been a little bit of a downtick in that. We'll get to that, but I, I'm going to jump ahead for a quick second and say, I think it's a, a lot of character, uh, the loss of character, but I mean, you got nightmare and Elm street is a big one, but Friday the 13th, you got Jason. He also, like you said, the creature from the Black Lagoon doesn't speak. Jason never talks. And I feel that there are times where Jason is just that cardboard cutout killer that there's no development and stuff. But as a character, he has endured since 
1980, Friday the 13th, the first one came out in 1980, quickly followed by 80, 81, we had part two, and that's where we first see Jason, although we don't see him exactly how he looks you know, in our collective conscious now, that happens in part three, which is still 82. So they, you know, the public was clamoring and the studios pumped those first three movies out in the span of three years. So he certainly was a strong enough character that everyone was on board with him, even though he had, if you guess, if you think about it, very little motivation, right? He was just killing kids that, like you said, some of them kind of quote unquote deserve to be killed in some super creative ways. And I think that, is exactly what we're speaking about. And I feel like that sums up this era is you got some good character and you got some great effects. And those two things made strong franchises and strong characters. Rumi, do you, do you agree with that? Do you have a different thought on that? Both these things are exactly, you know, what makes these things last? What is their legacy? And it's like, they had great kills. Freddy Krueger had, had knives on his fingers. That's such a creative and interesting weapon. And, and in, in all, even though Jason is known for his machete, I mean, really, every movie, he just had a tool shed full of stuff to kill teenagers with. And that kept people interested. It, even though Friday the 13th is formulaic at, at its base level, it's so formulaic, but it still was entertaining. And that's all anybody really asked for at that time. I just want to go see a movie, watch some crazy effects, watch some gory goodness and go home entertained. Sure. And they deliver on those levels. Um, Phil, for, from this era, from this 80s era, what is a movie franchise that, that spoke to you or is there a movie franchise that sticks in your mind as a legacy monster? Yeah, I, I look at film a little differently. I, I, I Some may argue this, but I think all film is art. And I think the reason why it's art, it isn't just from the creative standpoint. Our art is what we use to express discomfort and, and social, how would I say this? Like, for instance, back in the 30s, you know, we were in a depression. There was a war coming. The country was kind of monolithic, meaning like there was a church on every corner. Like there, it was a pretty strong Judeo-Christian nation. And so what you had were certain ideas of what fear was, what a monster was. So I think Universal did a great job capturing the fear of that time. When you move on to the 50s, you know, we were doing a lot more deep sea expeditions. We were getting better and better at going deeper and deeper into the oceans. We were also looking at, you know, obviously towards space travel we're so we're fighting the russians now and so you know what you had was a greater idea towards science and the fear of the unknown there um and and less of the whole egyptology like that kind of fell out of fashion because we we learned a lot more from the 30s to the 50s about that and so when you hit the 80s what was in the 80s? It was actually some pretty good times. Like, you know, we, we were not in any major war. I think I think we attacked Grenada. <laughs> and yeah. I think that was the biggest fear that we had during the Reagan era. And so you know, this isn't common politically. I'm just saying, like, like during the 80s, it was probably, you know, some of the greatest amount of wealth was being created. You know, you had a lot of movies like uh, Valley Girl. And, you know, it, it was all of this kind of you know, the rich girl and the and the kind of the derelict guy getting together. It was it was a lot of social commentaries. And I think um, I think when you look at the horror, it did kind of the same thing. You know, we weren't so worried about any of this stuff. Like if somebody told us that there was a creature coming out of the ocean, you know, the kids would be like, whatever, man. <laughs> like, right. They, they didn't believe it. And none of it scared them. So 
what terrifies kids? Well, I remember when I was growing up, I was always sent off to camps and it was great until nightfall happened. And then some camp counselor would, you know, after he did his little kumbaya, start telling us some urban legends about the woods. And you're terrified. And all of us, I'm 49, so all of us experienced that growing up. So, it, you know, it was like, well, what's scaring kids today? Well, it's not going to be some sea creature. No one cares about that. It's not going to be some Egyptology. Nobody cares about any of this stuff. So how do we scare kids? It was from their dreams, from you know, the woods. And most of these were not monsters per se. They were killed. They were supernatural killers. Yeah. We had just come out of an era where we had Son of Sam, the Zodiac Killer. I mean, you name it. There was Big a time. slew of serial killers, of mass murderers, in essence, of their own. So, and, and it was really creepy because if they didn't just, you know, or uh, Ted Bundy, you know, it, it's like yeah. you're looking at these guys going, wait, they're, they're like us. They're, they're human beings, but they're crazy. They're really not human beings. So I think it was a exploration of that, and that well, truly terrified me. Well, so, to jump on that, the 70s was definitely the rise of the serial killer. It's when the FBI started investigating these these types of killers. They actually had a name for it all of a sudden. Like you said, Summer of Sam. I mean, Jeffrey Dahmer. And like you said, it was kind of a party era, but there was also this concern for the teenager because this was the first time in, in really in history where teenagers really had their own culture because right. – the teenager before the 1950s almost didn't exist. You worked on the farm. You worked with your parents at your parents' right. store. Like you didn't have recreation time. But then in the late 50s and onward, teenagers had time and income to go have fun and and be a little reckless. And in the 80s, there was the big question: Are the kids all right? They're listening to weird music. Are they? They're smoking wacky tobacco. Like all these weird things were happening right. that. Suddenly it was like, well, what would harsh these kids buzz? A guy in a hockey mask with a, with a, with a chainsaw <laughs> yeah. and a machete. Right. Well, and, well, because, and, because these are these are all things – like somebody could do this to you. Anybody could. And they were doing this to you. Know, and it wasn't in mass. It, it, it was it was hysteria. Yeah. It's one guy – and I'm not minimizing the deaths and the way they died. But, you know, you look at John Gacy. You know, what are 20 kids? It's a lot for one guy to go through and cannibalize 20 you know kids. But the point is – that's 20 kids out of, yeah. you know, 3.2 billion on the planet. I mean, but it was shocking. And by the way, I think they've done this throughout history. It was just we had media now and we talked yep. about it. Right. And so. Right. And so this was now becoming forefront. And for all of us who maybe I mean, unless it's happening to you, you just don't think about it until people started talking about it. And the kids were showing up on milk cartons. Right. And so. Yeah. You're looking at this going, there must be a murderer in every corner. And so this became a hysteria thing. And so going back to your question, I'm sorry, I'm always giving a history lesson. Uh, I can't <laughs> help it. I'm a publisher of a monster magazine. But oh, we the, love it. Though. We got we the wrong it. profession, Phil. Wrong profession. <laughs> what I loved was Gordon uh, Big, which is uh, Bert, uh, Bert I. Gordon. He did The Giant Ants, all the sexploitation, uh, 70s where the toxic nuclear waste gets dumped from a ship and then it lands on this island in the East Coast and a bunch of teenage teenagers are, you know, out frolicking, trying to have sex with each other. And all of a sudden, the ants get into the, you know, and then they grow huge and then they come after you. Or the Incredible Melting Man was like so seminal in my life. It's like, I think awesome. it was, I, I, I was, I was, Living in San Jose at the time, this is before it was Silicon Valley, I remember going to a five cent, or it was actually a quarter, uh, it was a second rate theater, 
there was no VHS, there was no other entertainment. And this is where they released all of these kind of, um, you know, like the Roger Corman films. Oh, and yeah. Incredible Melting Man, I'm like, oh, okay, well, that's pretty scary, just in the title. So I, my friends and I got dropped off to go see another movie or something else that we snuck into. The Incredible Melting Man, and I, I, you know, the guy came back from, he got too close to the sun, and then he had radioactivity, and his skin was melting, like, he's going insane, so he breaks out of the hospital bed, and the first thing he does is kill the nurse, and it's all scary. Looking back, I'm like, all right, so the guy's kind of, you know, he's gone mental because he's got a medical condition, and it's not yeah. really a horror movie, it's more like a medical examination of radiation, but at the time, you're, you're a kid, you're going this is the scariest thing like this can happen. Right? <laughs> right. And so, and so I was really more into the kind of schlocky indie films, but they had less money for visual effects. So they had to spend their time developing a character, develop yeah. a story. And it was brilliant to answer your question. The incredible melting man. <laughs> <laughs> but we, we love that you dive into it, man, because I, I love it. I love hearing all the backstory and I love hearing that from a different perspective because we eat that stuff up. I mean, that's the reason why we read famous monsters. That's why we read these history books. That's why we watch all the extras on every DVD we buy and are pissed when a Blu-ray comes out and it's got nothing on there because you want to hear those stories. You want to hear where it comes from. And that's why we're talking about this. The legacies that big bring people back to these eras and bring people back to these areas again and again. I mean, for me, I'm going to jump back to, you know, I think George, you mentioned it, who really has had a terrible run, but the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the first one was so shocking and so crazy. But again, using very simple techniques, you got the long hallway, you got the single door and everybody just starts walking towards it. And you know, there's a monster behind that door. But from the seventies, you had this one Leatherface. You didn't get a sequel for almost 12 years, 12 See, years dude, later. Dude, I'm what, glad you brought that up because I noticed that too while I was researching yeah. for this episode. And I was like, that's interesting because that's one of the biggest spans of time between two installments that we've had in any of these franchises. You know why? Why? Because it was so grotesque. Yeah. That I, I, think, I think like there was no studio that wanted to pick it up. Uh, and, 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 and then when they started, you know, 12 years goes by people, it becomes a classic, it's more desensitized. And then what you have are, is infighting. And that's kind of oh. what happens in an, in, you know, in a, uh, in an independent horror film. And look, I love independent films and I'm not, this is not an argument for the studios, but oftentimes a good movie gets made like Halloween by John Carpenter. And then. You know, I think that was actually, was it made for studio? Anyways, the studios take over and, you know, they do a lot of bad damage to good, good ideas. But what they also do is create a structure for it to continue on. Whereas when you leave it to independent filmmakers, I mean, I, I've experienced the same thing. Everybody has an ego and there's nobody checking this. Sure, <laughs> and so, sure. And so there's so much infighting that you end up just not doing it, right? It's kind of like, like bands. They break up all the time. It's like, well, they made great music, but somebody, you know, the, the bassist thinks he should be the next you know, vocalist, and the vocalist says, you know, what am I going to do if you, you know, so anyway, you get what I'm saying. Actually, that, that, that's a great segue into what, uh, what brings us to a, kind of our last segment is the future of legacy, and I think you're absolutely right. So, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre suddenly has a bunch of sequels that come out, and each one's worse than the next one, 
And now <laughs> they put out a prequel. They put out a sequel to a prequel, you know, and, and you know, Friday the 13th gets 10 movies pumped out about it. And each one has its own weirdness. But now they can't even get a new one made. You should be able to pump out a Friday 13th every year. It's a guy in a hockey mask. What what else do you need? It's such a formula. Just keep repeating it. But they're the 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 infighting, the politics, the money and who owns the rights to what there's there was a 12 year battle just to get Freddy versus Jason made because who was going to get what kind of money when who's going to write it who's going to direct it what studio is going to release it all those all that infighting I think makes it hard to keep releasing the things that we love as we've seen right now the dark universe was had a failure to launch they couldn't get it off the ground they made one movie it did mediocre and it killed an entire Wow. Next generation of yeah. Well, yeah, well, I mean, let, let me just. I just need to jump. Like, <laughs> I love universe. I love Universal. I do. I yeah, think. Absolutely. I think that. I think they do a lot of good things. You know, NBC does a lot of good things, and but you know, they own the Sci-Fi Channel. But I, I just this is the case when too many lawyers are involved and not enough creatives. Yeah, I think what happened with I, I know what happened with it. Like this is what I was saying. Like, you look at the old Universal, the thirties, so the thirties to the fifties. Nobody's scared anymore. Nobody. So so it can't be. So so you know I look at this. I'm going okay. Hunchback of Notre Dame. Well, that guy was clearly uh, you know physically challenged. It's a handicap movie, but back then they're like, oh, if you're not a perfect human being, you must be a monster. You know. Yeah. And so so it's very politically incorrect. So I see the Universal Monsters as an extension of some kind of an Indiana Jones world. Yeah. And then I'll tie this into the 80s monsters with hockey masks and, and Mike Myers. By the time you're cheering for the bad guy, the effect of the horror is over. Sure. Yeah. So, so the story has to morph from a different angle. So what I thought should have happened in the, the dark universe is it should have started from an archaeology point of view. It should have started from an Indiana Jones point of view, where these these creatures are artifacts. Like, you know, Frankenstein really is a story of, of, a, of a Hebrew lore. The golem. Golem, yeah. right, exactly. So, so, so all of these things have long, long mythical history that they could have really exploited and they didn't and i don't have an issue with you know i mean i love buffy the vamp i have no issues with female characters versus male characters but it's like some of it felt really kind of forced and misplaced we felt yeah. I, I also felt like it was more of tom cruise's vo like so much direction was put elsewhere except the development of the universe and yeah and that's why it failed i mean i think the story has incredible viability each monster story could have tied in, kind of like the Avengers, through the era where they were most important. And then when you come to today, they, it could have been like this full-blown story of how we keep pushing this dark evil back. And then now in the 80s, like now we have, you know, computers and, and the Internet. And how is the dark spirit going to take, you know, over our social consciousness or something? Yeah. Because, and, and you ask, like, what is the future going to look like for horror? I don't know. I mean, when you're rooting for Mike Myers or Freddy, you're not scared of that anymore. <laughs> sure. Know? That's it, a good point. It's it, And it's interesting because we keep, like, 
a, a brief rundown of what we got out of the 80s. I mean, you have Leatherface, you have Michael Myers, you have Jason Voorhees, Freddy Krueger, you got Pinhead, you got Chucky. All these guys are just keep getting remakes. It's like we can't it, – it, it's really hard to build a new character. And, like, people have tried, but I feel like it's super hard to, to jump off into – a new classic character and it's like these i mean i think we're going to still get remakes and redos and sequels to those 80s monsters and the earlier 40s and 50s universal monsters i think we're going to keep stilling still seeing those monsters as opposed to the new ones rumi what are some of the the newer ones that you came up with when it was like who's going to have a legacy from the past 10 years or 20 years who 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 are some of the characters that you thought might be worth mentioning the biggest two to me i think are ghostface from scream and jigsaw from saw yeah. And I think that those, I mean, I love Ghostface as a design. I love the design of his robe and his face. And I think those movies are superior to the, to the Saw movies. And Jigsaw is like a good idea, I guess, if you're into a Saw. And I don't know if you could tell by my voice, but I don't really like that franchise. <laughs> I mean, he's got nine movies. You can't, yeah, that's you can't a, I mean, yeah, they, he's, like, he's endured as far as public opinion goes. And as a. Yeah. As a as a as a face as a franchise that's you know had his own you know uh, horror walks at Halloween time and shit like that that's that stayed for a while. I have a couple other ones from the the '90s and beyond, but I want to see George. Are there any other? Do you agree with my ghost face and jigsaw? Would you add to that list or would you take away from that list? I think from the '90s, I would definitely give them those two. Uh, I think an unsung hero that I I liked growing up was a. Uh, the Puppet Masters, the oh. puppet from Puppet Master. Oh, the you Full know? Moon Puppet Masters! It's, it's I love those. It's a it's a B movie to choose from, but it's definitely they still make movies. Surprisingly, yeah. sure, they, sure. They got like well, almost, I think almost ten films, if not more. You know, of Puppet Masters. That's that's definitely true. They've been there a while, and I feel like that's one of those ones that, like, if you throw that out, you're worth your salt for me because that wasn't one that was in the public eye as much as say scream or ghostface or you know jigsaw so if you know yeah. puppet master like okay we could keep talking yeah if you went to the, the video store though you saw a vhs of puppet master on the shelf sure that's true oh, yeah it was, it was guaranteed and that's how i watched every single one of them and they're actually making a remake now of that too yeah they uh, <laughs> they are remakes. about to put out another one um and yeah i'm actually excited about it because the fact that a company can keep putting these things out it's one of the reasons why i still like the chucky movies i know they have their ups and downs but the fact that they can keep pumping out these movies with classic characters and really cement a legacy for a long running series is is impressive i think it also comes down to studios i think you know chucky's produced pretty independently i think it's released by universal and such but then uh same thing with the the puppet masters i mean it's always been the full moon company making those movies and mm. they can kind of dictate where they go and what they do with it so it's just not as many i mean like phil said not as many lawyers involved <laughs> yeah what about a uh, candy man would you guys put him on this list he had three or four movies and i like the design i like why is everyone silent? Are you guys here? The reason is, is that I think, um, I mean, George hears me say this in the office all the time and, and I don't, I mean, here we go. Everybody, everybody, everybody is like, you know, everybody wants to prognosticate, but whatever is in the future is never, we're never going to know because we're sure. too much in the thick of today. But I do believe that the classics of the future I don't, I don't think we're going to see it here in the cinema medium uh, anymore. I think I think somebody brilliant on 
YouTube is going to create something where it's kind of, you know, the, the ideas kind of circle back, but I think... Uh, that reminds me of uh, War of the Worlds, Orson Welles. Yeah, War of the Worlds. Yeah. He was promoting that, and he was saying it's, and people were in mass panic, and like real people <laughs> listening to this radio station. And I think that somebody far smarter than me is going to figure out how to use social media to induce some type of hysteria where we can experience it firsthand. Because I don't think anything that happens in a two-dimensional screen is going to be effective anymore. Interesting. Well, I guess one of the... I guess one of the good examples of that currently is that uh, the character of Slender Man. He's got kind of a, exactly. He's got mm, a pulp yeah. culture following. They're making movies about him. I don't know if they're successful or not, but at the end of the day, that that's one of the first monsters created from the internet, uh, an urban legend that came out of the internet and became a real character force of a of a creature. No, yeah, sure. yeah, that's that's a good example of a uh, of that. I was even thinking of more recently with the movie It coming out. Because yeah. before that, we had the whole clown hysteria on on YouTube and everything. Yeah, you know, everyone was dressing up as clowns, scaring people as a prank, and it was it kind of left that little seed in our heads of like, oh, clowns are scary, and then bam, the it movie comes out. So you got to think, was that a publicity stunt? Yeah, so, was there a right. tie to that? Right. So so that's not what I'm saying. Is that I think kids are not. I you know I I don't watch that many movies anymore because it's like oh I've seen that story before. And cue killer and cue girl getting, you know, and cue, you know, like it's, it's so formulaic. Sure, and, sure. And so I think, I think the things that shocked us in the past was we had never seen it before. And we're like, holy crap, this is scary. And then, and then we wanted more. So even though we kind of understood it, it was so new, they were able to duplicate that. It usually runs about 10 to 20 years. And then yeah. it dies down because after that you're like, okay, I've seen this. And so I think, I think definitely some version of what we're talking about is just going to get really well fleshed out. Someone's going to create this mass hysteria. And like Slender Man, you know, people are killing kids. I mean, that's not what I want, but you know, in yeah. real life. But 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 the point is, it was so effective that it it caught the imagination of everyone, including some who are not so stable. So, yeah. yeah. Well, and like you just said, you everything is kind of formulaic. You're like, cue this, cue that. And if if you're going to give me that story again, I'd rather revisit old friends like Freddie and Jason than have exactly. to accept a new character retreading that same story. So maybe that, that, makes, uh, maybe that makes sense, but I do believe that that you know, that really is why we're stuck in sequelville as opposed to building new legacies. I think everybody would love to see new monsters, but at the end of the day, you're just going to be doing that same pattern, the same cookie cutter of cue, cue the, the dog barking to scare you, cue the killer jumping out from around the corner. Uh, that's an interesting one. The, the one thing I would say, though, that's kind of optimistic, and it's funny because preparing this, I was kind of looking at as this like the downer section because it's like, damn, I love horror and it looks like it's not as strong as it used to be. But like, like Phil said in, in, in a couple different ways during this show, I think movies, but all, all media kind of is a reflection of what's going on at the times, right? So like, you know, depending on what is happening in the world, the movies and, and TV are influenced by that, obviously. But it's very interesting to also think about 
how technology affects our storytelling. I hadn't thought about that. And uh, what you're saying about like maybe something cool will happen on YouTube or something like that. It's very interesting to think that, you know, in the next, within 10 years, we're going to have all different technology than even we have right now. And it's so ever changing. It'd be very interesting to see how that affects the medium. And, you know, you can get your Blair witches and your different things like that, that pop up and you're like, oh, damn, you totally made me look at that in a new a new light. You literally have put the industry on its side for a second right. to do it your own way. That's kind of exciting. If uh, hopefully, I mean, I, I guess there's always going to be artists and artists who do who will do that. So I guess, like you said, Phil, we're all kind of holding our breath, waiting for that next. Oh shit, that's a great idea. I wish I thought of that. Yeah, and and I think a lot of what we're seeing is as you know, again, horror is what frightens us. So classically, we think of people who look differently. Mm -hmm. I mean, can you imagine if I'm like, oh, look, at these wheelchair people today and they're horrifying. I mean, just, <laughs> it's like, what, what kind of terrible human being are you? You should be, you know, like, so, so we, but, but, you know, people were afraid of different people back then. And as, as society moves more towards an egalitarian and, and, you know, a greater understanding of, of each other. Part of what goes away is, in, in, in a lot of sense, like our prejudiceness kind of creates that horror too, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, so, so as, as that gets diminished and there's greater understanding, there's less horror. And I think that's why I see a lot more like terror or scary stuff for me into like near apocalypse, which is like, what if this society all stopped? What if the internet went dead? What if an EMP bomb went off? You know. Would we, what if food supply chains broke? You know, what if the LA basin, you know, it's, what is it like 22 million people in Southern California and the area can actually only grow for, I mean, sustain 900,000 people. So, you know, without trucks and fuel and a constant resupply of the grocery stores, it's Cannibalville within five days. I mean, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's like, <laughs> so, so I think those are, I, it's not like, you know, George and I, stay up at night thinking about this at all, but there are people who but we do. We <laughs> live in Northern California. We produce more food. Than, but, but my point is like if, when I was living in Southern California, it was something that I had to think about because I was living right above a dormant volcano. You know, we have the San Andreas fall just to the east of, I mean, you, know, you name it. And then you've got you know, gangs roaming around. You've got an, an ineffectual police department. Like you go down the list of all the things that and you almost felt like Los Angeles exists just as an accident ready to happen. You know, and so, <laughs> so you, you live in and, and everybody feels like it's not like you're extra paranoid. It's just everybody is like, yeah, this we're cognizant of this. I think the more immediate fear nowadays is some kind of social defabrication is what's on people's minds. So I, I don't know until we calm down from this and, you know, have another 30 years of glorious, irresponsible spending. Um, I don't know if our minds can be taken off of that horror to fantasize about. Right. Things like are a little, horror is a little too real right now. And that's, it's right. Like, that's my point. It's just a little yeah. dicey, right? So. But, but in my mind, when you take, real life fears like you look at a movie like Babadook which I think did a phenomenal job of taking a real life fear of dealing with a child that's difficult uh, you know do you know how do I feel about my child and then you manifest that into a monster that's when 
good creatures come out. That's when good horror comes out. I mean, when you talk about, I mean, zombies work so well because they really represent the the falling apart of society and sort of the brainwash of society for certain you know topics. And I think that that is why zombies have had this resurgence and has such a good run for the past ten years as being a great creature. You can always point to that as like, oh, society falls apart, mindless monsters chasing you down and eating you. Like that's that. That's why those work so well. But it's like, how do you take a certain topic? But right now, the, that topic's so broad, it's hard to put it into one monstrous form. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of what's going on nowadays is, you know, you you <laughs> you hear the Illuminati all the time, and uh, you know yeah. whether they're real or not. I don't know if they're uh, real. I don't. I, I don't care. But the point is, is that you know, there's there's a whole group of people who fear like this cabal of Satan worshipers. And, and it is interesting. It's like, you know, demonology and all that stuff is kind of coming back, I think. And I think what's always scary is something that you can't control, which is supernatural stuff. It's yeah. ghost stories are always like, whenever I see those ghost hunters, it's like, Damn it, just show me one time where you found a freaking ghost. Cause <laughs> you know, like, like I'm, I'm faithful that ghosts exist. And, you're just killing my, you know, my belief. But anyway, what's more scary than being possessed and then going and killing all the people you love? It's like, that's yeah. pretty scary. Well, I would love to see people get away from because it's really hard for possession movies and demon movies to get away from the shadow of the exorcist, which was like one of the first major just scariest films of all time to to deal with exorcism and possession. And it's like, if you can get out of the shadows of the tropes that it created and try and do some different things, I think you'd really have something there. And like, you know, again, movies like The Purge really deal with it. I don't know if they do it well. They're not my favorite, but they definitely shine a light on some of the deconstruction of society in a way that's pretty terrifying. And, you know, I think those are all really good points. I, and I mean... Looking forward, I'm excited to see. I really want somebody to create that next monster. Where is the next Frankenstein? Where is the next Freddy? But until then, I think we'll have to, uh, you know, keep going back to the video store and grabbing the ones that were our favorites. Um, you got Matt, a video wanna... store? Yeah. I do have a video wow. store. He does. I he have has a video... his own video store. <laughs> I have a video store in Atlanta I've been going to called Videodrome, and they have an incredible selection of horror and classics. And just I've been I've been going ham at this place. But, Matt, do you want to start a countdown for our legacy monsters? Yeah. All right, guys. Let's get into this countdown here. George, who do we got at number five? We have Freddy Krueger, Man with the Blades. Hell yeah. He's one of my favorites, too. I dress up for him at Halloween. but like You dress up for him as not Halloween. You just dress up with him because it's Tuesday. That's true. That's true. Sometimes I do just wear the glove because I want to. He's one of the best. He's one of the iconics. He brought so much character into a genre that had a lot of just silent mask killers. And he just is is a classic legacy monster. At number four, who do we got, Rumi? We got Mike Myers, which I got to apologize to him. We kind of glossed over him pretty quickly when we did the, the brunt of the episode. But he is the essential boogeyman. And I think he was one of the earlier ones. Uh, mm -hmm. The first Halloween movie was 1978. And that was... Kind of that and, and Texas Chainsaw kind of kicked off what we're calling like the second phase of those legacy monsters. And I think he was super important. The design is very interesting in him because it's very plain. But I think that adds to him and how creepy he is because he's more of a force than a physical thing. You know what I mean? And I think 
everything about him has just been creepy and it's endured. His He's got nonchalant overalls on, a regular butcher knife, and a just a white face. And he's had, what, 32 movies now and they're redoing it again? <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I think Michael Myers, he's a strong entry at number four. He paves the way for number three. Take it, Phil. Who do we got in our number three spot? My barista down the street. Uh, that guy, no, uh, creature from the Black Lagoon, of course. That design was crazy. You can't even find the zipper on that suit, and it's 1954. It looks great, and like Phil, you said, so dangerous. They're actually doing some deep diving in that suit. It's ridiculous. Yeah, I just want to know why were you looking for the zipper on the creature from the Black Lagoon? Just you curious. don't do you don't do that. Not not the peepee <laughs> zipper. <laughs> I know you guys can't see me right now, but I have my hands folded in a prayer position, and I fold it out, and then I fold it out. <laughs> for any um, of you who saw Shape of Water, you know what I'm talking. Yes. About. Yes. <laughs> I've worked on a ton of creature suits, and I've actually been in a bunch of creature suits. I've actually been in a creature suit diving in a pool and it was hard as hell but like you oh i always think and, and it's just like when we're talking about um when george was with us for our uh what have you been watching episode we talked about watching Waterworld, and i always think like damn how did they shoot that what how did they block that stunt for it to be so perfectly executed i think the same thing every time i see a good creature suit i'm like damn how did they get the actor in there how does those pieces move together and you watch that and it's 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 a very flawless suit for 1954 in the water man i mean with absolutely no visual assistance. It's just, it's it's mind-blowing, you know? Absolutely, man. But that brings us to our number two. I got Dracula, the original Universal Monsters Dracula. Bela Lugosi really created this character, crafted this character, and made an iconic image of a famous story that's based off of legend, based off of, loosely based off of a real person, but... Bomb Stoker really captured all that and then Universal put it on screen. And it, it's an amazing movie, really cool character, and he's lasted the test of time. I mean, vampires have, have had go, have gone through waves. We had the badass vampires of Blade. We had the shimmery vampires <laughs> of Twilight. Rumi, and, why would and, you even mention uh, that? <laughs> that? It's part of the legacy, man. It's true. It's true. It's It just shows you how, how iconic they are, that they can survive Twilight and still be a badass monster. I mean, you can survive even those low points and still come back. I think you have a legacy going for you. What? What? Which brings <laughs> us to number one. Who do we got at number one, George? Finish us out. We got the big guy with a heart. It may not be his heart, but it's a heart, and it's Frankenstein. <laughs> nice. <laughs> that was a good intro. Uh, I like that. George, why does Frankenstein speak to you? Why do you think he is as enduring a character as he is? I relate with that torture. It's like his face, it, you, when you look at that face and that makeup that Boris Karloff was wearing, you immediately see the emotion of of being tortured, of being torn down. It's very connectable, especially like Phil, you brought it up, the whole father figure who doesn't accept this child that he brought into the world. Right. I think there's a plenty of children out there who who connect with that. They they had that father who maybe didn't connect with them as much as they, they should have, who didn't show them the way to live in the world that they're they're brought into. You yeah, know, yes. 
Like Frankenstein. Frankenstein. Frankenstein isn't as scary looking though. Yes. Frankenstein, Frankenstein was like a virgin to emotions. Yes. <laughs> I would love to do a music video with a Frankenstein singing like a virgin. I just think of young Frankenstein now doing yeah. putting on the yeah. Madonna. Putting on the wrist. Right. Sorry, Madonna. Such a classic. Yeah, we know you're listening. Oh, Sorry, man. Madonna. That's our countdown, guys. What did we miss? I know there's a, a lot of people are going to be bummed that some of their favorites weren't on there. In the legacies, what did we miss? Were there some creatures and, and monsters? And... Oh, yeah. Oh, we didn't even mention the Wolfman. Yeah, there's yeah. so many. And Phil, there's you'd so mentioned many. Predator and the later movies like that. There are so many, and we only have so much time, but we would love to hear what you guys think. Write us. Write us on Facebook. Write us on Instagram. Let us know. Did we get anything wrong? I know you guys like to point that out. I'd <laughs> <laughs> love to point that out. We actually love but, to read it, though. We love to hear your guys' opinion. So please, let us know. Yeah, let us know on our Facebook, on our Instagram, on our Twitter, at LaunchPadPod. Phil, George, thank you so much for joining us on our Legacy Monsters episode. I know we were going super fast, but you guys held in there like champs, really gave us some great backstory and some great flavor to this episode. We love having you on as guests. Can you guys tell us what you have coming up? We have San Diego Comic Con. Of course. Deal. So we have, you know, we have a comic book imprint. And so um, we've been over the years talking to a lot of uh, production companies and agents and and literary agents and um echo lake which they're just they're an incredible company they're a boutique um beverly hills company that puts a lot of deals together and um, so we're doing a story with them uh for television um we also there's another project i can't actually talk about right now but it's um potentially a a another big television series uh, from a Nice from tease. a comic book adaptation, adaptation, yeah. But you know, it's it's always. I always say this. It's like um, when I first got into the business, you know, every time somebody uh, would talk to us about this, or we'd get a contract, let's celebrate, and it's a little too soon. So you know, it's. I, I, I my whole feeling is until the check clears and I'm on the set. Yep. <laughs> oh yes. Sure. It's it's yeah. it's exciting. Uh, but it isn't real for me until then. So absolutely, well, keep us posted because we're ready to hear that. Well, yeah, we'll get to talk more about this at Comic Con at our panel, yes. though, in which we shouldn't gloss over this. You guys will be joining us. Yeah, big announcement at the Famous Monsters of Filmland panel at San Diego Comic Con. We will be moderating. We're super pumped about that. We're beyond excited. What can people expect from that? Oh well, you kind of just did with the oh. <laughs> some of that Echo Lake news. We yeah. can't we can't divulge too much now. Yeah, that's true. But uh but yeah, we do have some some hopeful shows in the works with with those comic books coming out. Uh, we will obviously talk about our, our annual which will be our second annual issue of Famous Monsters coming out this October. Nice. Yeah, we have new new comic books coming out for AGP, which are some winners from our Silver Scream Fest. Very cool. And so, yeah, if people uh, want to follow you on social media, where, uh, where can they find you? Uh, we are on Facebook at uh, FMOFL and Instagram at Twitter at Famous Monsters. And uh, you always, if you want to be sporting that merch, you know, check out Captain Company, you know, wear FM with pride. Nice. Pedal it. 
Pedal it, George. <laughs> I'm proud of you. <laughs> well, guys, thank you so much for coming on. It's really been a blast. We love chatting with you. One of our favorite, favorite groups to talk to and to collaborate with. And we can't wait for what we got coming up in the future. If you're planning to go to San Diego Comic-Con Friday afternoon, check the program for the exact time. But come to the Famous Monsters of Filmland panel and the Rocketeers will be there moderating. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be so cool to do. We've been wanting to do a panel at San Diego Comic-Con since we started this podcast and we're finally getting a chance to do it with some good friends from Famous Monsters. We're so pumped. Please come out and see us if you're there. Check it out. Matt, you ready to blast this thing off? Yeah, let's do it. All right. <laughs> I'll do a three count and then we'll do it, okay? All right. Three, two, one. <laughs> Until next time, guys, we're the Rocketeers. This is the Launchpad Podcast. Thanks for listening. Rocketeers out. Oh.